0: hppodcraft.com It is midnight Before dawn they will find me and take me to a black cell where I shall languish interminably while insatiable desires gnaw at my vitals and wither up my heart till at last I become one with the dead that I love My seat is the fetid hollow of an aged grave My desk is the back of a fallen tombstone, worn smooth by devastating centuries. My only light is that of the stars and a thin-edged moon, yet I can see as clearly as though it were midday. Around me, on every side, sepulchral sentinels guarding unkempt graves. The tilting, decrepit headstones lie half-hidden in masses of nauseous, rotting vegetation. Above the rest, silhouetted against the livid sky, an august monument lifts its austere, tapering spire like the spectral chieftain of a Lemurian horde. The air is heavy with the noxious odors of fungi and the scent of damp, moldy earth, but to me it is the aroma of Elysium. It is still... "'terrifyingly still, with a silence whose very profundity despeaks the solemn and the hideous, "'could I choose my habitation, "'it would be in the heart of some such city "'of putrefying flesh and crumbling bones, "'for their nearness sends ecstatic thrills through my soul, "'causing the stagnant blood to race through my veins "'and my torpid heart to pound with delirious joy.' For the presence of death is life to me.
1: If you were thinking this was from a goth gathering on Halloween night, you'd be wrong, (laughs) but only technically.
2: To me, this sounds like an innovative goth office design. You know? <laughs> You're gonna love working here. As, as you can see, it's open plan. It's actually a repurposed graveyard, <laughs> uh, and we're gonna put you here next to Chuck in this fetid hollow. And your desk is a fallen tombstone, worn smooth by devastating centuries. So very ergonomic. I'll let you get settled.
1: I do like cemeteries and yes. gothy things, but not to the extent of this particular character. <laughs> But our listeners, they should settle in because we are finally here to discuss the Notorious Lovecraft collaborations with C.M. Eddy. Ladies and gentlemen, it's The Loved Dead.
2: As Ken Haidt described it recently, a heartwarming tale of necrophilia. And uh, we're going to talk about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Fife.
1: And I'm Chris Lackey. We're at hppodcraft.com and Patreon.
2: And who was that fantastic reader?
1: Oh my god, that's Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Yes. They're always putting out great products, and right now they've got some new stuff that they released. I think it was for Necronomicon, but it's out now available. There are two new Dark Adventure Radio theaters, Mad Science and The Lurking Fear. Uh, I highly recommend checking them out. I got to hear the Lurking Fear performance on Friday night at Necronomicon. It was great. They do a really good job of making these stories fun and entertaining. Mad Science is a combination of, I think, four different stories... Uh, the electric executioner is one of them beyond the wall of sleep from beyond and winged death they kind of mix those together to form kind of a, a, a bit of a narrative it, it's fun cool stuff highly recommend it andrew lehman thank you so much for reading for us
2: yeah folks should check it out at hplhs.org we'll link out in the show notes and it was good to get uh, andrew back because since we're going way back to do some actual lovecraft this week it was nice for us to get our first best reader involved And uh, we should have actually covered this story nine or ten years ago when we were going chronologically through Lovecraft's work because C. M. Eddy wrote this story in 1919. It was then revised by Lovecraft and published in Weird Tales in 1924, Mm. supposedly causing some controversy. But uh, we can talk about that at the end of the episode.
1: We talked a bit about these stories when we covered that time period of Lovecraft's work, but we didn't dedicate any shows to them. We Mm. did cover the story "The Ghost Eater" live in Providence last month, which you can hear as our August bonus episode.
2: Yes, that was just uh, released a couple of weeks ago, and that story was lightly revised by Lovecraft, whereas this one I really feel like he straight up rewrote it, because mm. it, it's almost a parody of his early Poe phase work in terms of the very purple prose. Yeah. It's quite different from the Ghost Eater. I, I just I think it's definitely an early H.P. Lovecraft story, although he probably got the plot and certain other elements from Siametti. Mm. And I have to admit, it's kind of exciting to cover this, because for an H.P. Lovecraft podcast, this is actually the first Lovecraft story we've covered in seven years. <laughs> I mean, we ran out.
1: There's a finite
2: number. Yes, we've done far more non-Lovecraft work. There are 3 Eddie CME-Lovecraft collaborations we're going to be doing this month. This one, Ashes is the next one, and finally Deaf, Dumb, and Blind. Mm -hmm. And then once we finish those, you know, that will truly be it. For fiction yeah. by Lovecraft. Barring the discovery of some worm-eaten forgotten tome he never told anybody about. I'm glad in a way that we waited to discuss these because it's sort of a fitting capper for our ten years doing the show. Sweet. We did some biography on CM Eddie Jr. on that live episode. Uh but since not everybody will get to hear that, I will give you the short version mm-hmm. quickly here. Uh Clifford Martinetti Jr. was born in Providence, just like Lovecraft, but six years later he was born in eighteen ninety-six. Just like HPL, he had a childhood fascination with mythology and the occult. His first story, Sign of the Dragon, was published in 1919 in Mystery Magazine. Lovecraft began communicating with Eddie and his wife Muriel around that time, and they first met face to face in 1923. Muriel actually has written a couple of memoirs about Lovecraft and has stated that Lovecraft's mother and CM Eddie's mother knew each other through the women's suffrage movement. And uh, had actually bonded over their weird kids (laughs) Uh, One of the Eddie's children, Ruth, also wrote a brief memoir of seeing Lovecraft as a child That is called The Man Who Came at Midnight So lots of information we get about Lovecraft comes from these folks Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked a bit about some of the hijinks Eddie and Lovecraft got into in our live show Including a visit to the notorious Dark Swamp in Rhode Island Mm -hmm. Or a near visit and uh, also their collaboration on Ghostwriting the Cancer of Superstition for Harry Houdini, which was cut short by Houdini's death in 1926. Mm-hmm. Seems like Eddie and Lovecraft had a lot in common, a very close relationship. Lovecraft even referred to Eddie as his adopted son. So that's basically uh, the story about Lovecraft and Eddie. Again, check out our live show if you want some more biography. Yes. I don't really know how this story came about in particular, but I imagine Eddie saying, you know, hey, I've got this sketch of a story about a guy who's into dead people, and Lovecraft just saying, I can run with that. It's <laughs> in my wheelhouse. So... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's run with him running with it and talk about the loved dead.
1: So our story begins with the unnamed narrator in this creepy cemetery. He knows he will be found soon and taken to jail, but why? Melodrama, perhaps?
2: (laughs) Sir, put down those adjectives. Sir, put down those hyphenated adjectives right now. (laughs) Okay, now if I search your pockets, is there anything that will hurt me or stab me? What's a Lemurian horde? (laughs) All right, get this guy in the back. I can't talk to him anymore. Get this guy in the back. That opening paragraph gives you the situation that this guy is writing his tale in a cemetery using a tombstone as a desk. uh, And some folks are coming to lock him away. But the important thing we learn is that he's all about death. Mm. The air is heavy with the noxious odors of fungi and the scent of damp, moldy earth. But to me, it is the aroma of Elysium. So to him, this is heaven. Mm -hmm. Could I choose my habitation? It would be in the heart of some such city of putrefying flesh and crumbling bones. So he'd like maybe a modest condo in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre-style neighborhood. (laughs) He says, the presence of death is life to me. So this isn't a supernatural story. No. This is about a real guy with a real problem. Yes. Which actually makes it a bit more scary in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, it does.
2: Than your typical Lovecraft story. I mean, I've honestly never sat down and read this before. Heard lots about it. Kind of dismissed it. But I I have to admit, on this reading, I found it pretty disturbing. On On our live show, Ken said, this is a terrible story it just happens to have that necrophilia in it which sets it apart. Certainly it is pretty melodramatic and easy to make fun of in that respect, but yeah, I was thinking this narrator, he might sort of be like that protagonist of that shay story we did recently with Patton. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the one from last week, but Nemo May in Puny Lacesset where the narrator mm-hmm. had that effective Lovecraftian thought and speech. It was easy to for me to believe that this character aside from his more obvious problem had also affected this kind of grandiose literary style as a means of setting himself apart or above other people. Yeah, You know, I just thought maybe this is how he expresses himself as part of his mental issues. And, yeah. I, and obviously there's a gross-out element to the story, but I genuinely got creeped out getting into the mind of this guy, and the language was part of it.
1: It, it is part of it, but it's also, like you were saying, th- this is a real guy. There's nothing supernatural about this. And it's disturbing looking back at this Because this was written in the 1920s, but it has very modern ideas about psychopaths and his behavior. His mindset seems very real to me. Yeah. But let's let's get into it. He was a child. He was uh, bookish and frail. Other kids made fun of him and left him out of their reindeer games.
2: Right. They called him an old woman. He is undersized. I think this line to to what you were just saying is so Mm -hmm. important. I had no interest in the rough, childish games they played, or any stamina to participate in them, had I so desired. So there's both condemnation of the others, but also a trace of self-hatred there, Mm -hmm. He's like aware of his own weakness. I think that's so interesting, because I do believe there's some autobiography about Lovecraft here. You know, he had a difficult childhood, famously, was Mm -hmm. sickly and bookish. You know, he wrote concerning his teenage years, I was and am prey to intense headaches, insomnia, and general nervous weakness, which prevents my continuous application to anything. You know, we know that in nineteen oh eight, prior to graduating high school, he had some sort of nervous breakdown. He was he was likely depressive throughout his youth. Yeah. So it's easy to say, okay, this is just him grabbing from his childhood, but but as you were saying, inadvertently or not, this lays out the pathology of this character in a pretty accurate way. Yeah. You know, profiling and, and the lives of serial killers, this is like pop culture now. We all know all about it. And there's things going on here that match up with that, even though nobody was talking about that stuff when the story was. Nobody was. Yes. And I was looking at information about necrophilia specifically, unfortunately, for my search history. And uh, <laughs> I, I found I found this from the uh, Bulletin of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, an article called Sexual Attraction to Corpses, a Psychiatric Review of Necrophilia by J.P. Rossman and P.J. Resnick. Uh, typical beach read. Um, But in in this 1989 article, Rosman and Resnick reviewed information from 34 cases of necrophilia describing the individual's motivations for their behaviors. These individuals reported the desire to possess a non-resisting and non-rejecting partner, Mm. 68%, reunions with a romantic partner, 21%, Mm. sexual attraction to corpses, 15%, comfort or overcoming feelings of isolation, 15%, or Mm. seeking self-esteem by expressing power over a homicide victim. Twelve percent. So, I mean, I think our narrator is hitting all of those. Yeah. Except the more Poe esque reunion with the romantic partner. That's a Poe thing. (laughs) But you know, this this kid, as as he self describes, was picked on, isolated. We can kind of read between the lines and see that he had low self esteem. You know, like no matter how gleefully he expresses that fifteen percent. You know, he's just attracted to the dead and the trappings of the dead. I think that paragraph about his childhood illustrates that there's a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. That's really behind it, whether he's aware of that himself or not, the possession of a non resisting and non rejecting partner
1: yeah, i agree it It's kind of disturbing how real it seems. Yeah. But back to the story, he grew up in a rural village called Fenham. Uh, Now, there is a place called Fenham, but it's up by Newcastle in northern England, so I don't think it's the exact same place.
2: Yeah, this is definitely just generic Lovecraft country. It could be England or the U.S. eastern seaboard, but, you know, small towns, small cities, and lots of countryside to flee across.
1: People said he didn't fit in, not even with his own family. Some superstitious people thought he might have been a changeling. Others said that he might be a descendant of a necromancer burned at the stake.
2: Yes, this is a great-great-grand-uncle who was burned. And that's the only real hint that something otherworldly or maybe genetic maybe at work right you know was this passed down to him from his witchy uncle or did the uncle have the same tendencies and got burned for that since they yeah. didn't understand you know what was going on with him you know it's Lovecraft because he had to fit in some kind of shameful heritage angle even if it's just a throwaway <laughs> line <laughs> now, now in setting up this next inciting incident from his past the narrator talks about how as a teen he was not just an outsider but he was also apathetic about every everything you know kind of yeah. had anhedonia he doesn't care about anything nothing brings him joy he's got no, no motivation to do anything in his life
1: it wasn't until he was 16 years old that he attended his first funeral it was his grandfather's he didn't want to go to the funeral usually he didn't want to do anything he just wanted to be an outcast soul and youth but he is into this vibe this vibe of darkness coffin death it's cool
2: to him he's interested in the trappings of this funeral It draws him in, but the real jolt happens when his mother leads him to the casket of his grandfather. It says for the first time I was face-to-face with Death, capital D.
0: My whole being seemed charged with some ecstatic electrifying force, and I felt my form straighten without conscious volition. My eyes were trying to burn beneath the closed lids of the dead man's and read some secret message they concealed. My heart gave a sudden leap of unholy glee and pounded against my ribs with demoniacal force as if to free itself from the confining walls of my frail frame. Wild, wanton, soul-satisfying sensuality engulfed
2: me. When he says sensuality, I don't believe that's a directly sexual comment. It's just that he's really feeling something. He's sensing, he's feeling something for the first time looking at this body.
1: So something in this dead man arouses the narrator's spirit. This body has the face of peace and contentment, something that he longs desperately for.
2: Yeah. And also, I think when it says his grandfather was immeasurably content, blandly satisfied, he's envious of that, as you say. But I think it's also an expression of the non-rejection element of the dead. Mm. You know, his grandfather's there. He is physically there. But in his deceased state, he has no reaction to his grandson being there. There's no judgment. There's no reaction he can, he's just going to be content no matter what our narrator does or says.
1: So for days after the funeral, he feels elated. His mood changes and is noticed by everybody.
2: It says the village busybodies found fresh material for their vitriolic tongues and my altered bearing. What do you think they're saying about him? Like, <laughs> hey, look, the nerd has an altered bearing. <laughs> What a nerd. I mean, he seems like he's cheered up a bit. Uh,
1: But this elation soon wanes and he goes back to being a Debbie Downer. Mm -hmm. Over the next five years, both of his parents die. His mother dies first in an accident. So genuine was my grief that I was honestly surprised to find its poignancy mocked and contradicted by that almost forgotten feeling of supreme and diabolical ecstasy.
2: So this almost incestual element of the story, nobody had warned me about. I guess Mm. when you lead with necrophilia, and go, oh, there's a little incest uh, buried in there as well, just in case that's not enough for you. you But again, this is a a pathology, right? I mean, these things start in the family. Mm. He haunts the death chamber of his mother. He just lingers by her body.
1: He feels this desire to be near dead people. So he talks to the local undertaker and he convinces him to let the narrator become his apprentice.
2: And his dad is too messed up over his mom's death to be bothered by that. You know, if, if that hadn't happened, he might have protested that profession. But he just says, yeah, sure, be an undertaker. I personally feel like hes you're showing interest in anything. I don't care what it is. You know, sure. go, go do it. But then his father dies as well. It says from some hitherto unsuspected heart affliction, which I think is Lovecraft's overwrought way to say he died from a broken heart. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> He just doesn't want to say it outright.
1: Sure. Uh, He's able to convince his boss to let him do the embalming on his father, though I'm not sure if he had any real
2: experience. But he, he labors over his father's lifeless clay, does the embalming himself.
1: Yeah, unsurpassed love was the keynote of these concepts, a love greater, far greater than any I've had ever borne him while he was alive.
2: Yeah, he finds a love for his father in death. It wasn't there when he was alive. And I think, again, he's no longer being challenged by this person. Mm -hmm. This is the first time his father, when he's in front of him, isn't looking at him disapprovingly.
1: So after he settles his father's estate, there aren't enough people dying in this small town to allow him to indulge in his predilection. So he moves to a city, Bayborough, which is bigger and has more business.
2: It's about 50 miles away from Fenham.
1: He's able to get a job as an apprentice at a big mortuary in the area, the Gresham Corporation. He even arranges it so that he can live on the premises, lots of access to the dead. So soon he becomes one of the most skilled morticians, no task being too gruesome.
2: And this is where things get, I think, pretty explicit about what's going on, like as explicit as you can. It says, every fresh corpse brought into the establishment meant a fulfilled promise of ungodly gladness, of irreverent gratification. The return of that rapturous tumult of the arteries was transformed my grisly task into one of beloved devotion. Yet every carnal satiation exacted its toll. Hmm. Carnal satiation.
1: Yeah, that's the phrase that makes me think that, yeah, that's what it's about. It's-
2: he could just mean handling the bodies, but uh, I think he's doing pretty raunchy stuff. And, yeah. and this, is, this is such serial killer language when he says it extracts a toll. And it's not because he feels he's doing something wrong. It doesn't extract a moral toll on him. It's because it makes the days when he can't be with the dead people terrible. Yeah. You know, he needs this more and more.
0: Then came the nights when a skulking figure stole surreptitiously through the shadowy streets of the suburbs. Pitch dark nights when the midnight moon was obscured by heavy lowering clouds. It was a furtive figure that blended with the trees and cast fugitive glances over its shoulder, a figure bent on some malignant mission. After one of these prowlings, the morning papers would scream to their sensation-mad clientele the details of some nightmare crime, column on column of lurid gloating over abominable atrocities, Paragraph on paragraph of impossible solutions and extravagant, conflicting suspicions. Through it all, I felt a supreme sense of security. For who would for a moment suspect an employee in an undertaking establishment, where death was supposedly an everyday affair, of seeking surcease from unnameable urgings in the cold-blooded slaughter of his fellow beings? I planned each crime with maniacal cunning, varying the manner of my murders so that no one would even dream that all were the work of one blood-stained pair of hands. The aftermath of each nocturnal venture was an ecstatic hour of pleasure, pernicious and unalloyed. A pleasure always heightened by the chance that its delicious source might later be assigned to my gloating administrations in the course of my regular occupation. Sometimes that double and ultimate pleasure did occur. Oh, rare and delicious memory.
1: So he not only becomes a murderer, he becomes a serial killer.
2: Yeah, who's even trying to vary up his methods so as to throw suspicion away from himself.
1: Yes, I mean, that was a, a tactic that uh, Henry Lee Lucas, uh, that serial killer, used
2: to, yeah. to
1: get away with his crimes.
2: And I feel like there's some double meaning in that last sentence, you know? I mean, he says sometimes that double and ultimate pleasure did occur. Yes. What he, mean, what he means is I kill them, I get to spend time with them, and then they get delivered later to the yes mortuary. But I, I, there's something just even dirtier in that phrasing. I, this is when I got well and truly creeped by the story because there are people out there and have been people out there who have this kind of stuff going on in their heads, you know, your Jeffrey Dahmer's.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. You
2: just mentioned, I don't know. This was this story was freaking me out a little bit, man.
1: <laughs> it was definitely freaking me out because this is a serial killer pathology.
2: But you know, serial killers are as old as history and there are we're certainly, you know, and he keeps talking about how the papers are going crazy about this murder spree. These are things that people have been fascinated by, you know, in the twenties and yeah. you know, eighteen nineties and the but I I specifically the characteristics of you know what's going on with these people I don't think were common knowledge. And so no. that's why it's you know
1: it's so interesting. And being from that perspective, like there's a lot of insights in here that yeah. are are very on the nose and I, it's, yeah, I think so. it's disturbing to me that like what does that say about the
2: authors (laughs) (laughs) well i think it just says that that they have some they're doing some guesswork that's pretty good i i honestly think you know just trying to empathize well they're trying to sympathize with who what might drive somebody to do this and so they're hitting on some some truths yeah uh, that you know maybe wouldn't be hard for anybody who can kind of understand people to to do but yeah
1: back to the story one morning mr gresham comes in early to find the narrator sleeping with a body.
2: It says, During long nights when I clung to the shelter of my sanctuary, I was prompted by the mausoleum silence to devise new and unspeakable ways of lavishing my affections upon the dead that I loved. I mean, come on, that's a straight call out, yeah. right? right? The dead that gave me life. One morning, Mr. Gresham came much earlier than usual, came to find me stretched out upon a cold slab, deep in ghoulish slumber, my arms wrapped around the stark, stiff, naked body of a fetid corpse so i wouldn't say he's been hinting at the sex in yeah. previous paragraphs exactly but the nudity here this yeah. uh, uh lavishing my affections i think that's mm-hmm. pretty explicit I, I i mean as you as can't you can be yeah 1920s, you, as you yeah. can't be for the 1920s there's no and my god i don't want it to go any no. further than that my, you know, <laughs> no. there's it's tantalizing you know what was it so was he his arms are wrapped around is he naked too
1: it doesn't say that he
2: is but What's maybe that the gender would... of the body like there's a lot of things that you
1: don't yeah know. i guess it doesn't matter his boss is horrified but he says that his boss's eyes are full of detestation and pity and he tells the narrator to take a break that the job is getting to him and, and the narrator knows gershom is in a position of power here and can totally ruin him so he just you know does what he's told which is basically just leave go away
2: And the implication is that maybe Gresham has seen something like this before. He's mixing up the cause and effect and that he's thinking, oh, he's just living here. He's around this stuff too much. He's probably lonely. Mm -hmm. He he takes it to be a little more innocent than it is and thinks that it's the job that's done this to him, not that he sought the job. So he can do those things. Right. He gets it. He gets it twisted. (laughs) So
1: from there, our narrator leaves and moves on uh, going from city to city to find work. He moves a lot so that he can hide his activities. And, right. and he doesn't want to stay any place too long because it would rouse suspicion uh, but then the great war comes and he's one of the first ones to go to war and one of the last ones to return he calls his time there four years of transcendent satisfaction
2: he's into the sickening slime of rain rotten trenches I love those hyphenated adjectives. Stifling fumes of murderous gases, grotesque remnants of smashed and shredded bodies. So Lovecraft is pulling from the Herbert West handbook for this story beat. Uh Uh-huh. Calls back to that, which was written before this.
1: So after one of his wanderings, he ends up in his old hometown.
2: In every wanderer, there is a latent urge to return to the scenes of his childhood. Sure, he's saying it's a latent urge, but I think it is a bit of that return to the scene of the crime thing. Mm-hmm. you know I don't think he winds up there accidentally I think he's trying to recapture that initial rush of seeing his grandfather like any addict you're chasing that very first high and it happened here in his old hometown so not many
1: people live there anymore in this town and the old house is very unkempt and falling apart it now houses a man a woman and their child and they are very very poor
2: the man is a dissolute drunkard it says he
1: goes into Bayborough where he got busted for his corpse cuddling <sighs> Right, and he goes back and finds that the city is thriving and that his old company has been taken over by someone else so he finds out that Mr. Grisham had died during the influenza epidemic uh, during the war and he is delighted that his antics were never reported Mm -hmm. so he goes back to work at that place right And quickly, he gets back into his murdering ways, and his delight grows as he confounds the authorities. But his desires are getting the best of him. His crimes get more and more frequent.
2: This is like those serial killers who suddenly disappear for decades and then out of nowhere start murdering again. Or Mm -hmm. want their names to be in the papers again. I mean, for the people of Baybro, this must be absolutely horrifying. But again, he doesn't say, you know, you say that uh, his delight grows as he confounds the authorities it it definitely he's definitely delighting in it because he mentions more than once what is going on in, in the newspapers there's mm-hmm. some kind of delight he's taking in the fact that these things are being reported on which again is a very serial killer yeah, pathology. But he, you know, he's he's doing more crime now, right? He's driven to uh to murder more people, to get a satisfaction more often.
1: He's chasing that high, you know, yeah. that it's getting less and less powerful, so he's trying to do it more and more often and right. somehow he leaves a clue at a crime scene, nothing that points at him specifically, but something that draws the authorities closer to him. He doesn't go into any details about it, but you know, maybe they suspect somebody that works in a mortuary or something like that. Right. And, and he he can,
2: might not even know what he did because he's becoming so benumbed to uh, anything other than getting what he wants, where he was yes. so careful before. I feel like that's the justification that he's like, well, I just wasn't paying as much attention because I needed more and more, but maybe there's a part of him that wants to be caught. Mm-hmm. So he's being a little sloppy.
1: Finally, one night in a tenement building, he is just finishing up a gory murder when the police come to the door.
2: He's still got a gory razor in his hand, and, and he pockets it as nightsticks beat a lusty tattoo upon the door.
1: He throws a chair out the window, and he escapes into the alley before the police can break down the door. He runs through the city and into the outskirts of town.
2: He gets into the woods, and like I say, there's lots of countryside to uh, flee through in a, in a Lovecraft story. Uh, mm-hmm. He's out there hiding for a long time. It says, a week later, Juan bedraggled and emaciated. I lurked in the woods a mile from Venom.
1: So he spends a week out there. Yeah. Just hiding out in the swamps and the woods, waiting for the heat to die down. Hunger and thirst now are driving him into deeper madness until he finds himself near his childhood home again. Yeah. And he thinks to himself, those people that are in the house got some new prey. Like, he talks about hunger and desire, so it makes me wonder, is he eating these people as well? Is that something that's I don't going think on? So. No?
2: Well, I mean, hey, why not throw a little of that in there with the incest and necrophilia? Sure. But I <laughs> I, don't, well, he, I think the hunger is for his proximity. I mean, I think he cherishes these bodies in a sexual way, so he wouldn't want to consume them necessarily. Right. Although that can get mixed up with that stuff, too, so, you know, I, I don't know. I don't
1: yeah, know. he sneaks into the house, and he goes up to the bedchamber.
2: Yeah, he goes to his old house. That drunk and his family are still living there. For the whole week he, in the woods, he couldn't be with any dead people. So he's got to have it. It says, no longer could I delude. This was interesting. No longer could I delude myself with the thought that this desire was a mere whim of the heated imagination. I knew now that it was an integral part of life itself. That without it, I should burn out like an empty lamp. He realizes this as he's breaking into his old, his old home. You know, he is completely consumed by this addiction now.
1: So he, he sneaks in. Panther-like, I made my way to the supine form stretched out in drunken stupor. The wife and child are not there, but he doesn't care. He goes in for the kill on the man. And then, I think later he maybe does find the woman and the child, because it says three silent forms slept to wake no more.
2: Definitely. the you know Lovecraft and Eddie spared us the murder of a woman and child, but right. I'm pretty sure he strangled all of them.
1: So he knows he has gotten sloppy in his bloodlust, that the crime scene is littered with clues. His fingerprints are on the guy's throat. He gave himself a haircut, leaves his cell phone on the body, wishing that he never took those selfies with with the bodies (laughs) after he killed them. So he runs back into the woods, knows that the authorities are on his trail. Yeah. So he knows he's going to get caught, but he hopes to make it to the cemetery where the cemetery where he once worked the one where his parents are buried at and he needs to have some corpse sex before he's caught,
2: <sighs> or just to be around the dead things that he loves but maybe it is like i gotta get another in, i gotta get one more in at least before, <laughs> before i go to jail uh it says god can it be a scant 12 hours that have passed since i started from my ghostly sanctuary I have lived an eternity in each leaden hour, but I have reached a rich reward. The noxious odors of this neglected spot are frankincense to my suffering soul. Just being in in that cemetery puts him at peace.
1: But being in that cemetery, he can hear dogs in the distance. He knows he's going to be caught. In jail, he can't fulfill his desires. And there's only one way to escape, and that is by death. So he takes out his knife and he slashes his left wrist.
0: Warm, fresh blood spatters grotesque patterns on dingy, decrepit slabs. Phantasmal hordes swarm over the rotting graves. Spectral fingers beckon me. Ethereal fragments of unwritten melodies rise in celestial crescendo. Distant stars dance drunkenly in demoniac accompaniment. A thousand... Tiny hammers beat hideous dissonances on anvils inside my chaotic brain. Gray ghosts of slaughtered spirits parade in mocking silence before me. Scorching tongues of invisible flame sear the brand of hell upon my sickened soul. I can write no more. And that is the
2: end of the story. Ends with that very typical Lovecraft. They're writing all the way up the last yes.
1: yes. Now, this story, due to its grisly subject matter, caused a bit of a storm, you know, com- some controversy. According to Eddie, copies of Weird Tales had to be withdrawn from sale in many places. Now, Robert Weinberg says that that's not necessarily true because he wasn't able to find evidence of this happening. But mm-hmm. S.T. Joshi says that the story elicited protests from authorities in Indiana who have sought to have the issue banned. Farnsworth Wright became hesitant to accept any stories from H.P. Lovecraft um, that featured anything gruesome or, you know, kind of explicit like this story. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. for the time. Lovecraft kind of got a lot of stories rejected from Weird Tales, maybe due to his work on this story.
2: Right. I mean, I think that there's a little mythology. They, they even say that this, I read some things that said the story saved Weird Tales because the, it was, it was going bankrupt, and the controversy surrounding the story right. was what got more people to go check it
1: out. Yeah,
2: And we say, for the time, i got to say, I mean, this is shocking for now as well. I think that necrophilia is one of those last, you know, truly verboten things in society. You know, this is oh, something yeah. that they, you know, there's not a lot of entertainment that concerns this kind of stuff. No, because, first of all, it's just gross. It's ultimately yeah. transgressive. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I just don't think, other than the shock value, there's really no, you know beautiful thing about it to be explored
1: <laughs> there's a actually, i actually think there's a couple movies that have addressed this subject well, the, the sure. necrophilia yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah and i think i might have seen i well i saw there was one what was necromantic there was
2: necromantic yeah that was a big one and
1: there was another film which was about a woman who would worked as a mortician and had uh. some kind of love affair with dead people it was like some kind of art film i seem to yeah remember. it's
2: definitely out there i mean it's a sub 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 genre of uh you know of shocking art yes that concerns this and has for centuries honestly there's you oh, know of if you look through the if you look through the history of necrophilia which is something that i did we don't need to get <laughs> that, but uh, you know this stuff has been around since the ancient egyptians of
1: course death is inevitable for all of us so there's there's got to be curiosity and we're going to experience death in our lives. Even if it's not us, there's something about that, the mystery of death and what goes on afterwards. Well, and
2: if you, you know, it's the ultimate dating pool, right? I mean, there are way more fish in the sea when it comes to dead people than, than living people. So <laughs> naturally it's going to come up.
1: Dating pool.
2: <laughs> uh, well, a lot yeah. of the like historic stories had to do with people who are still in love with their mate, you know, yeah. having, like one last time with them. Yeah, less this kind of thing, which I think is ultimately about power and violence. Yes. So actually, I'm going to say, as, as many people have told me that this is a bad story. I think it's a good story. You know, I, you know I'm not going to teach it in uh, junior high or anything. <laughs> like that. But I I think that it is truly <laughs> creepy. It's not typical of what I prefer to read. I like my horrors to be phony. You know, I mm. like my my werewolves and my werewolf ghosts and my yeah. robot werewolf ghosts and on and on. As an early example of what is so much of a pop culture trope now yeah. that the serial killer story and inside the mind of the madman. I think this is a really interesting take on that from the 1920s. I mean, I think yeah, it, it kind of is, it's an early of a piece of, of what, of the things that people watch now, I think that are fascinated by. So Absolutely. it's impressive in that regard. I want to thank Andrew Lehman once again for reading for us.
1: Creep me out with that reading. I was whew.
2: a little too authentic, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Here's some other creeps who I'm sure will be glad uh, that their names got mentioned on this show. <laughs> some patrons that I want to thank. Some delightful
1: people that really we <laughs> use creep in the the most loving way. Absolutely. Uh, I want to thank
2: Patrick Kelly. I want to thank Tom Mueller.
1: I want to thank Sarah Augustine. Thank you. I want to thank,
2: I want to thank David Jordan. Uh, Thank you, Michael Ring. John Manis. you are the best.
1: John Ross, thank you for your support.
2: Eric Ponvel, you're amazing.
1: Ryan Dawson, you're the bee's knees.
2: And finally, I want to thank Daniel Watkins. You all are great. Thanks so much for continuing to make this show possible. We will be back with more C.M. Eddie and Lovecraft collaborations next week. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
1: I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast
2: at hppodcraft.com.